Good morning, everyone. Um, we, we come to quite an amazing topic this morning. Um, so it is exciting, um, and it is life-changing. But I wonder, can anyone remember what ended in 2003? What about 2002? Well, that year may be old and forgotten, um, but as we come to the end of this series, let's remember, we've looked uh, in some detail at real Christianity, and we've seen through Paul's letter to this very young, fledgling congregation of believers in quite a difficult situation really but how these ordinary people can actually come to be real disciples and they can make more real disciples they can draw on a real word to face a real battle And in all of that, they can experience real encouragement. And they can pursue and display real holiness. And as we heard just last week, you can, or they can live, and we can live, in a real hope, especially of what is to come. It's incredible. But I think as we come to the end of it, Paul kind of makes a summing up. And so to conclude, that is the series, not this talk. Um, Sorry sorry if I got your hopes up there. We come to real grace. And perhaps real grace sums up all of the other things. Or perhaps it is something different and distinct. Let's have a look at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, which Samuel is going to read to us. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encouraged and disheartened. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, and reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you, Samuel. What is grace? We have various uses for this word. It's a girl's name. It might speak of elegance. It might be the prayer before a meal. Or even an official title. But none of these are the grace that we are considering here. The word itself is only mentioned once in this passage, right at the end, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's fair to sum up this word as perhaps undeserved favour, but I think that idea is worth unpicking a little bit, both the undeserved bit and the favour part. How undeserved are we actually talking here? Are we talking about someone being randomly chosen from ten people? Or are we talking about looking for the worst enemy you can possibly find and choosing them? And how much favour are we talking about? Is it a bit of a boost in life like winning a holiday? Or are we thinking about favour as continual and unlimited, a bit like being heir to the greatest monarch who has ever ruled the earth? Well, perhaps this little clip, this film clip from the um, version of Les Miserables will help us to clarify our thoughts. Hey! Come and suffer, you are weary. And the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There's a bed to rest till morning. Rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today. Bless our dear sister and our honoured guest.
Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. He had the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. I think that little clip sums up Grace quite well. Um, I don't know if you spotted as well in the in the background there were some rather shocked faces of the bishop's servants there. It's shocking. It's unusual. And for those who know the film, um, or the musical, or the book, there's another character there, Javert. And he can't understand or accept this grace and can only understand the rule of law, a different approach but I think perhaps a more humanly speaking, more readily accepted one by both society and individuals alike. Because the rule of law says you get what you deserve. Karma. That is basically karma. You get what you deserve. But grace says, you get good that you don't deserve. And in addition, you don't get bad that you do deserve. You too summed this up quite neatly in their song, Grace which I think is worth a look before we explore some more of the detail of this passage. And as we hear it, and you see the words come up on the screen, hopefully, but you'll also um, see that you've got that in your um, insert in Face to Face um, or on your mobile if you want to look back at some of the words. Um, But bear in mind the context in which this is written. Um, All the troubles and hatred in Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants 
were the basis for this. And Bono, uh, the lead singer-songwriter, had a Catholic father and a Protestant mother. So he'd experienced these troubles and he'd seen firsthand um, a lot of retaliation and hatred. And he comes up with this song. Yeah. 
So now we've had a little chance to think about what grace might be. What does it look like in this passage? What have we got here at the end of 1 Thessalonians? Is it possible to live out real grace? If we take this passage as a whole, there seems to be quite a list of things Paul is saying to his readers, mainly do or do not do this or that. They do seem to be tied into the fruits of the Holy Spirit, though. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let's have a look again from verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I don't think much needs to be added to that. It's it's self-explanatory. It's clear what to do. And it's also clear what not to do. It's just difficult. It's certainly not easy. How can anyone possibly be joyful all the time? Or pray continually? And are we really to give thanks for the bad circumstances we encounter? Why would that be God's will? I think a clue comes later in verse 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this next verse is the key one to unlock the whole thing. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. There it is. That's how. 
We will be sanctified through and through. Well, that's not an everyday word, is it? But I think we might consider it to mean purify, make holy and set apart for God. So this isn't stuff that we can do by just trying a bit harder. This isn't a set of things that we can do by making a long-term plan to achieve each one. Our own efforts, in fact, will not even come close. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And these are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. I think that's why Paul is so keen for them not to put out the Spirit's fire. Because that's something we clearly can do. How do you put out a fire? You starve it of fuel or you suffocate it by not allowing it oxygen. We are able to starve or suffocate the spirit's fire. If we don't allow ourselves spiritual food or feed instead on suffocating material, then we'll put out the spirit's fire. And we won't be able to live in this way. So can the ordinary person live this way? And do they? Can we? Do we? Can I? Do I? Well, I think many, in fact most people, probably demonstrate love and these things that go with it to those who are perhaps in our family or friendship group, people we would say, oh, I would do anything for them. Maybe partly because they, we know they might do the same for us or we have a particular commitment to them. That's not grace. Large numbers of people, be they Christian, Muslim, atheist, and all other faiths and none, are compassionate and kind And do help those who can't help themselves. Those who can't ever hope to repay. And who may be a long way away in a developing country. This is kindness or love. But it's not the grace shown to us by Christ. Not many people, I would suggest, love their enemies as Jesus instructs. Not many will help and give to those who actually act against them. Not many will return an act of hate or malice with an act of love. Going beyond non-retaliation or ignoring something and acting lovingly instead. This is the grace of Jesus Christ. And this was demonstrated by Christ himself while we were still sinners, while we were actively rebelling and taking an opposite side to God, spurning him, ignoring him. That was when he gave his life, showing the full measure of his grace. All the favour of God. The forgiveness of sin. 
the restoration to a relationship with himself, the power of the Holy Spirit through his gifts and producing of fruit, sanctifying us, ready for eternal glory in his presence. That is what Christ bought for those set against him. So does Christ, does Paul in this letter, really ask this of the Thessalonians? Does Christ really expect this of us today? I would feel totally inadequate and unable to act like this. My family will tell you that I cannot give in this way even to them. My friends will tell you that I fall short of this by a long way. My colleagues at work know that I'm a Christian, but I doubt would say that, oh yeah, he acts always in love and kindness to those who do him wrong. So do we put this on the back burner, put it out of our mind as something only Christ can do and not something that's realistic for us? I think we can acknowledge only Christ is perfect. Recognising we are not will actually help us to worship him. But recognising that we will not be perfect doesn't mean that we should give up. We learn to expect and be open to the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, working through us. We cannot. He can and will. When we do act graciously, we can give him glory because we know it's him at work in us. But to demonstrate this grace, I think we must first experience grace. I would even go as far as to say, if we have not, experience the grace of Jesus Christ in our own life, then we cannot act in a Christ-like way in grace towards others. First, we have to recognize our need of the grace of Jesus Christ. Then we can see that nothing we could do will enable us to live out real grace. But if we desire that, then we're bound to call on God and ask him to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that we can then live real grace-filled lives. Entirely dependent on him. There is a prayer by John Stott that's in the news sheet and again on your mobile device um, that might be useful to pray on a daily basis. Um, I I won't uh, read it out now, but I've found that useful this year, um, was introduced to it last year at New Wine, Um, and I haven't done it every day, um, but I've had it in mind that as something where at the beginning of the day you can say, I'm depending on God. That is quite a useful prayer. Um, 
So if you find that sort of thing useful, then do take that away uh, and use of it, make use of it. But I'd like to finish um, with a story. Um, it's a hard one, actually, for me to include um, because I failed in a very similar, almost identical way, even within the last week. Um, and I'd read this story before my failure. And without being changed by the Spirit, I will fail again, and probably quite soon. But this, this is Timothy's story. It is quite a long one, but it makes the point, I think. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. And after a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she'd always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern United States. I thought I'd mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. But what I didn't expect was the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behaviour in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida... I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk her through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, but you're part of our family and we're not leaving you behind. 
I'd like to say that her behaviours grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiralled out of control at every hotel and rest stop, all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed out to Disney World on the day we'd promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. (laughs) But in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. And when bedtime rolled round, I prayed with her, held her, and asked... So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good, it's because I'm yours. I experience the real grace of Jesus Christ, not because I'm good, but because I'm his. I can demonstrate the real grace of Jesus Christ, not because I'm good, but because I'm his. We at Portsford Church, we can experience the grace of Jesus Christ, not because we're good, but because we're his. And we will demonstrate that grace, not because we're good, but because we're his.